0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Habakkuk 1, verses 1 through 4. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds." You know, I think as modern Americans, we've done a really, really impressive job of trying and effectively doing it, pulling it off of hiding ourselves from the reality of life in a broken world. It's not just that our trash gets collected in colorful bins and discarded in a faraway place so that we don't have to see it or smell it. And yes, it's that we also pay either with the sweat of our own brow or with cash out of our pockets to keep our lawns manicured so that they look like they're ready to be featured in a magazine. It's not just that. It's It's not even just Disneyland that reportedly has a crew that works every night shift, repainting Main Street constantly so that it constantly doesn't show the wear of time. No, it's that we too do the same thing. We're always updating, upkeeping, and renovating to hide ourselves from the reality that our world is fading fast, that things are breaking down, that there's decay and death all around us in every form. We hide ourselves from those realities, not just in our homes, but even in life itself. We have hospitals for our sick, nursing homes for our elderly, a mortuary for our deceased. And I'm not saying that those places shouldn't exist. They really exist to preserve the life and dignity of many of our loved ones who are suffering. And they help to protect the general populace, society, from unnecessary spread of diseases. So I'm not saying they shouldn't exist. I'm just merely pointing out that we do a really good job at insulating and isolating ourselves from the reality of life in a broken world that's been splintered by sin. But what happens in life when we can no longer hide ourselves from the grim reality of life on this side side of the Garden of Eden? When we're confronted with sin and sickness and suffering and death? You know, I don't always have weeks like this, but I want to share a bit of my week this past week with you. Not because I was heroic in any way, because really it has nothing to do with me. It's other people's challenges that they're suffering through, not my own. But these are the lives and realities of people all around us that can't hide themselves from brokenness and life in a sin-splintered world. It was me a week ago sitting with a young man in his 20s over pancakes who's facing the reality of his mother being in hospice care because of cancer leaving him to begin to imagine a future life and family that would not include his own children, her grandchildren, growing up ever knowing his mother at all. He was walking into an ICU to find a mother intubated, trying to communicate on a pad of paper with a pen, with her tears speaking clearer to the room than what she could sketch out on that legal pad in front of her. It was sitting as a chaplain with a crew who rescued 16 children and elderly who were facing grave danger amidst our intense rains and what they now are calling the flood of the century in San Diego. Some flooding that reached nearly rooflines in, in the community that they entered into, a, a legitimately life and death situation. It was chatting with a fiancé who's facing the reality of the one that they love potentially facing a third round of cancer before they reach their mid-20s. It's a conversation that happened at a funeral, actually. That conversation took place at a funeral of a beloved grandmother who was the centerpiece of a family unit who now is being laid into the ground. It was then a text message on this Thursday that confirmed that the cancer was, in fact, back, and a third round of treatment for a young friend is going to be necessary. That same day, it was a family reaching out to tell me that their son would enter a drug rehabilitation program for a third time in the last 12 months. Another text this week was with a local pastor, whose wife was just put on hospice as they now face a grim reality of life without her by his side. You was sitting with the crew as a chaplain this week who performed CPR on a 20-year-old woman here in our local community, community to no avail, but them telling me not to worry about them because the next shift came on and walked into a scene of a deceased teenager who was too overwhelmed to face another day. I mean, what happens when we find that we can't hide ourselves from the harsh reality of life in a broken world? What do we do when no matter how hard we try, we can no longer insulate ourselves or isolate ourselves from these grim realities? Who do we blame or where do we turn when life hits us like a gut punch? I mean, don't you ever feel burdened by life in our sin-splintered, broken world? If you do, then I want you to know that the little book of Habakkuk that we're jumping into a little mini-series on that it was recorded just for you. You see, this morning I simply want to introduce you to the prophet Habakkuk and the little book that he is credited with writing, and then we'll spend the next couple of weeks actually looking at the message and the questions that it stages for us between his, his conversation, his encounter back and forth between he and his God in the midst of a broken world. So today, just by way of introduction, what I want to do is I want to look at three things with you, specifically three things about this book, just by way of introduction, that should leave you surprised. Three things that are surprising to us in fact I'm not much for titles for sermons but I'll give one to this it would be the surprising book and burden of Habakkuk and the first thing that we'll talk about is how it's surprising because we don't even get much of an introduction to this prophet because there's something that seems more important to God to communicate about his story but the second thing is that it's surprising because his burden and questions are recorded in the Bible which is actually what we'll spend the majority of our time discussing this morning. And then we'll close quickly by just mentioning that it's very surprising as well because of how God brings his just judgment on the sons of Adam. So consider with me the surprising book and burden of the ancient prophet Habakkuk. And the first thing, if you're taking notes, it's worth writing down. It's surprising because we don't know much about this guy. We don't know much about Habakkuk. I believe personally that God inspired the biblical writers to record what they did in history. Paul would say it this way in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work or 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 12 says for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the holy spirit now i tell you this because i believe that habakkuk's pen is credited for writing what is there in your your bible today But I believe behind that is the Holy Spirit who's the one who authored it, which is really interesting to me, because God is clearly then more concerned with us knowing the what of Habakkuk's burden and message than he is with us knowing the who, the when, the where, or the why of Habakkuk. And think this through with me. Most of the Old Testament prophets begin with an introduction that would give us at least a couple of pieces of insight information specifically about their family and background. Like the, the prophet Zephaniah, if you were just to flip just a single page to the right, you'd find his introduction. In chapter 1, verse 1 of Zephaniah, he says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of another guy whose name is even harder to pronounce, and then another guy, also challenging, the son of Hezekiah in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. What they do is they give not just the information about his family history three generations back, but they even provide a timestamp. And that's something that you find with so many of these prophets, is that they, in their introduction, give a timestamp like you find in the prophet Micah if you were flipping two books back to your left. You find his introduction in Micah chapter one, where he says, the word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in which he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem, or thinking even of the prophet Isaiah, who after his introduction, where he pronounces these woes on the nation, he then in chapter six says, giving a timestamp for us, that in the very year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And then begins his prophetic imagery that he shares with us throughout the remainder of the book. There's a timestamp that tells us exactly when it happened. And there's information given to us so that we know who it happened with. Which is all very interesting to me because it seems like God is more concerned with the what of Habakkuk's burden and message than he is with us knowing the who, the when, the where, and the why. You probably noticed already that in the introduction, we're told nothing of this man, this prophet's family or lineage. In fact, it'll take some super sleuthing if you study the book as a whole to even have an educated guess about when this prophet lived and ministered. And that super sleuthing will basically point you to him being a contemporary of Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and even a contemporary of Daniel when Daniel was a young man taken into Babylon. Babylon. Truth be told, scholars aren't even certain on how to pronounce this guy's name. With scholars differing on opinion, and it's probably already bothering you the way I'm saying it, and so feel free to correct me later, but scholars are split in every direction. Is it Habakkuk? Is it Habakkuk? Or is it even, one scholar suggested that I read, Havakuk? Which I kind of like because phonetically when you try to write that out, it says, have a kook. Listen, some even argue that this isn't even a Hebrew name that we're pronouncing here, that this is actually a name that the Chaldeans, which are the seeds of the Babylonian Empire, when they come in at the end of his prophecy and take the children of Israel captive, that they give him this name, that it's not even a Hebrew name. Most, though, agree that the name means embrace, which is interesting, that this would be the one that we would know from Scripture as the one who is embraced. You see, so little is known of Habakkuk because there's no further mention of him in in Scripture that give us any details about him. I know maybe you're thinking, hang on, I'm pretty certain that later in the New Testament people quote him, and they do. The Apostle Paul will quote him, as well as Peter, and whoever he or she was who wrote the book of Hebrews will also quote this ancient prophet. But the only place that we find any personal information about him is in other ancient Jewish writings that emerge out of antiquity that are separate from the Bible, writings even that are far less trustworthy than a Bible. Writings like the Jewish Midrash, which is an ancient uh, compilation, a commentary you could say of the rabbinic teachings of rabbis in the first century about the ancient customs and traditions and thoughts that they had. And they log a story that they claim happened between Habakkuk and God, where Habakkuk comes and brings his complaint to God and tells God, I'm not moving until you answer me, to which God replied, and I quote, you are not an ignoramus. At which Habakkuk humbly changes his mind and his tune, and the story continues. And then there's an even less trustworthy account that emerges from Jewish folklore called Bell and the Dragon that maybe you've read over time. It claims that there's an angel that at one point carries Habakkuk to a very hungry young man who's in a lion's den. As Habakkuk had prepared his own lunch, he now carries it like an ancient pizza delivery boy into the lion's den with Daniel surrounded by ten lions to feed him a meal and accompany him just for a brief moment of time before being whisked away by that angel. It's folklore, and it feels funky at best. But I tell you all of this just to remind you that God seems more interested in us knowing the what of Habakkuk, of his burden, than even us knowing much about the the who, the when, the where, or the why. And the what of Habakkuk is introduced to you in the very first verse, where it says in this little book, It starts with the introduction that this is the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. It begins with a Hebrew word that's rendered in a a variety of different ways, depending on which translation of the Bible you have on your lap. If you're holding an ESV, it says the oracle of Habakkuk. If it's the NIV, the prophecy. If it's the NLT, it's the message. If you're holding a King James or a New King James, it's this word. It's it's the burden. They're all really t- attempting to convey something, that, that this was a significant moment for this prophet and his nation as they encounter God, which is very different categorically than this is just the prophet sharing his thinking. No, this was a moment in time, a weighty moment. Track with me. That's the burden. You see, the Hebrew word that's used here is used 66 times in the Old Testament. Fifty-eight of them in a King James translation or New King James translation are rendered as burden because that's what the word literally means, to lift or bear up under a weighty thing or a burden. It's describing a person who's having to carry a heavy load and is feeling the weight of it. Or metaphorically, it's a person bearing under an important or significant a weighty thing, and feeling weighed down by it. My friends, this is the word that we would use when we're confronted with the world's brokenness. After all the work that we do to try to insulate ourselves and isolate ourselves from that brokenness, when that fails, then we find ourselves deeply burdened. Like, what are we to do with this heavy thing, this harsh reality that we live in, We feel like a person who's carrying a heavy load, or remember, metaphorically, this is like being crushed under a significant or weighty thing. Please hear me, the book answers the what. You see, Habakkuk here, he expresses his burden, and what he says about the weight that he's bearing on his back and on his soul is that he looks to God and says, God, have you Have you even noticed or seen the injustice and wickedness that exist in society? And if you see it, when will you vindicate the righteous? When will you intervene and put an end to all of the suffering? Listen, next time we're together, we'll see that God responds, making it clear that he definitely sees what's happening, but he will then make things he promises worse before he makes them better. That it's only going to get darker before the dawn of a new day comes. God tells him what I'm going to do. Yes, I see the injustice amongst my people. I'm going to send the Chaldeans in, which are the seeds uh, that will grow into the Babylonian empire. I'm going to bring them in to chasten and discipline my rebellious people who have turned so far from me that I might win their hearts back. You see, this is the point in the story where Habakkuk's anger then will seem to get redirected towards a new target. The God that he's appealing to is the one that he's angry. How could God consider using such a wicked and evil people to come in an act of just judgment over the people of God? How could God use something that's so dark and wicked, use a people even who are so dark and so wicked to choose an action, how could he, that seems so terribly unimaginable? but those are things we'll save for next time. You see, I want you to see the surprising book and burden of Habakkuk begins with God seemingly more concerned with you knowing the what, that this book is all about the burden of a man who looked at life in a broken world and then looked towards God and said, what gives? He's far more concerned about you knowing that than the who, the why, or the where. Now, here's the second thing. It's surprising because his burden and questions are recorded for us. The second reason I find this surprising is that that burden takes up real estate in your Bible. It's sufficient to say that one of the things that this that makes the book of Habakkuk so unique is that it really isn't necessarily a prophetic book like we'd think of or imagine when thinking of prophets like Daniel or Isaiah or Ezekiel's writings. And I say that because the point of this book is not necessarily to get you to look forward into the future in faith to a future day. It's really recorded to encourage you to look around at your present broken world and to choose to live a faithful life in spite of the brokenness that you are surrounded by. Listen, although there is prophetic foresight of looming judgment and justice that's going to come in this book, the point of the book is for us really to feel the weight and burden of life in a broken world while struggling to hold on to our faith in a God who still remains faithful. A God who does, in the end, prove himself to be just and faithful and merciful and judge over all. But this book pulls us into the tension where we process what is life in a broken world supposed to feel like? What do we do when we're up against tragedy and injustice and deep sorrow and when we're trying to reconcile those things with our faith in a good and loving and just God? Oh, how do we trust in a good God while living in a broken, sin-splintered world? Hear me say this. This prophet, Habakkuk, is the Bible's invitation to bring those questions to God, because it's what you find the prophet doing. You see, this is what I believe makes the surprise of Habakkuk's questioning, God's attentiveness, his goodness and care. I believe it makes it such a beautiful thing for us to look at, because God, by recording it in scriptures, he's inviting us to be honest and real with him alongside this ancient prophet. In other words, if you're feeling those things alongside this prophet, apparently God is okay with it. After all, he's including this dialogue in the book. You see, this is part of the surprise of Habakkuk. It's surprising to me as I study it, that his burden is even recorded in scripture. I once read someone refer to this book as a rare look into the private diary of a confused preacher. Author Heath Thomas, in his book, Faith Amid the Ruins, he observes that Habakkuk speaks to God in a way that is uncomfortable for believers, uncensored, confrontational, and brutally honest. And the truth is that most of the time we don't really speak to God that way. In fact, we think of our approach to God as being our time to talk nice to him. You know, in the home group that I'm a part of, this week we were discussing what last week we were walking through in Scripture, where Jesus teaches us about prayer. And we started discussing why it is that for each of us we find ourselves, when we pray and spend time in the presence of God, that we find ourselves being so hesitant to really being honest with God when we approach Him in prayer. I mean, sometimes we seem to be so hesitant to come to God vulnerably, even though We know that he already knows what we think and feel. We still don't seem to want to put it into words. I mean, is it possible that it's because we're afraid really of voicing? We're afraid really of hearing? Or we're afraid really of knowing how we really feel about life in a broken world? Where I don't want to hear myself say, I'm lonely. Or God, I feel lost. Or God, I'm so overwhelmed. Or God, I can't begin to express my disappointment. God, I'm hopeless, or God, I'm angry, or God, I'm just scared. Listen, don't be afraid to walk into those sad places and emotions. Walk in confidence into them, knowing that you don't walk alone, because you are inviting God into those spaces and experiences. And that's what you see Habakkuk doing here. As I mentioned to you last week, I think we're meant to pray as if we're answering God's original question, where he's asking humanity, where are you? Where are you? You see, my prayers are a continuation of the conversation that God started in the garden. My prayers, though, leave me with the same choice that the very first humans faced in the garden. Will we allow ourselves to be exposed or will we cover up in that moment? Oh, remember, please, that grace tells me that I have nothing to lose, nothing to prove, and nothing to hide. And grace is what I believe I will be greeted with when I enter into God's presence. Because Jesus, my Savior, he was treated as an enemy so that I could be received as a son. And my friends, grace is what I believe the prophet Habakkuk found when he approached God with honesty and vulnerability. And it's surprising not just that he found grace, but it's surprising that by recording this, God is inviting us to come just like he did. You should know that this isn't necessarily a unique thought or question from the prophet Habakkuk you find the same thing recorded in Psalm chapter 10, where the psalmist, he writes, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or it's the famous Psalm of David in Psalm 22, where he says something similar, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season and am not silent, but you, you're holy throned in the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by people. David's saying in that moment, you've been faithful to other people. But God, where are you for me right now? You see, this isn't a unique thought or question from this prophet. Habakkuk here, at the onset of his mini book and burden, he's not indignant at God. He's indignant with his countrymen, really, who are the cause of the oppression and injustice amongst their own people. But he carries that burden to God to question, how long will you tarry before you bring justice? How long will it be before... God, you intervene to stop all of this. How long will it take for you, my God, to arise and save the oppressed from injustice? You see, although Habakkuk begins with indignation and anger that's aimed at other people and not at God, what you find as you study his book is that his anger gets redirected. We even find it to be misdirected towards God himself. And he's angry at God both for his mercy in waiting to judge and for his justice when he finally chooses to bring judgment. Now, let me point something out to you, though. It was God who even instructed this ancient prophet to write down clearly What's happening in this moment so that his present generation would be aware of why God would allow them to be overrun and oppressed by their enemies, and so that you and I as a future generation would be drawn into the struggle for faith that Habakkuk was working through. In fact, skip ahead just a page to chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, where then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but the at the end it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in, in him, but the just shall live by faith. You see, it was God himself who told him, write this down clearly. Make a record of this. And he did it for his current generation, to see that their oppression that would come would be something that God would promise to use, but he also wrote it down plainly and clearly for you and I as a future generation to be invited into his battle for faith. That we too would find our place next to him amidst the struggles that we have to believe in a faithful God in the midst of a broken world. You see, this is what really surprises me about Habakkuk's little book. Although the book begins with only a brief introduction to the prophet himself, the existence of the book, I would argue, speaks volumes about the character of God. We know very little about the person, Habakkuk, or his character. The existence of this little prophetic book, just three chapters, inside your Bible, I think says a lot to us, though, about the character and the nature of God. I mean, think about what it tells you about the character of God and about the way that he will relate to us with grace and patience and compassion, because he places this man's struggle for faith in the pages of scripture. He's including it here, the story of a man who comes to God with an accusation, questioning him as to whether or not he's even just because of the brokenness that he's seen in the world around him. You see, clearly God is okay with our questions. Look at how he here willingly engages with this ancient prophet as he wrestles through his faith in God and the reality of life in a broken system. You see, God wasn't just gracious with Habakkuk; He was even willing to put his story and struggle in the book so that we would know that we too can bring our questions and doubts and struggles to God as we wrestle through them with him. So if that's true, then let me ask you, And you don't have to raise your hand, just answer it in your own mind and heart. But do you have doubts and questions? Maybe you don't even consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but where do you take your doubts and questions? Maybe you do see yourself as a follower of Jesus. Then my question to you is, what do you do with them? What do you do with your doubts and questions? Do you feel embarrassed or ashamed because you have them lurking in in deep corners of your heart? Did you try to voice them to somebody at some point in time only to have them freak out and overreact in response to you? Or do you just suppress those doubts and questions that are now deep beneath the surface? Do me a favor, quickly flip back towards the beginning of the book, the book of Genesis, all the way back to Genesis chapter 32. The book of Genesis begins with a statement about God, pre-existence, and then him entering into creation, creating order out of chaos, and then creation, though made in perfection, you remember it's corrupted in rebellion. And the storyline of the book then follows a promise that God makes in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, that he would come miraculously to crush the head of, of the rebellious serpents uprising, but in the process that he would be wounded deeply. You then follow the story of God's promise to humanity, and this the attention of the reader lands on Abraham where God reiterates a one-sided promise to Abraham that he would be faithful to him, giving him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that through one of his descendants, he would bless the whole world. You then follow that promise to Isaac, Abraham's son, and then to Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob. And then your Bible becomes hyper-focused on this character, Jacob who tricks and takes advantage of his family. And then after doing that, stealing a birthright and blessing, he puts serious mileage between himself and his brother because of that great betrayal. But then God speaks to him, telling him, Hey, I'm going to give you this land, and, and all the earth through you will be blessed. God reiterates the promise now to Jacob. And that in that moment, the God that Jacob had heard of became the God that Jacob heard from personally. Jacob first begins a relationship with God himself. But then he hears that his brother Esau is headed his direction. And he knows we didn't end our relationship very well the last time we saw each other. It's been many years ago, but it was me lying and tricking and deceiving him out of his inheritance. And so you might remember the story. Jacob's like, I'm just going to put all the women and children first in line to meet him first, see how that goes, and then I'll skedaddle if it doesn't work out very well for them. It's the first time in his story, though, where he is wrestling with Do I continue to connive and do it that way, or do I actually trust God finally? And we've all been there in life where you're wrestling through faith. Am I wanting to take matters into my own hands, or do I trust God at his word because he said that this would be true of my life and future? But the amazing thing is the metaphor of wrestling there with God becomes more than just a metaphor. In that moment, there's a very real wrestling match that breaks out and I can't explain it. I don't fully comprehend it. I don't even completely know what happened in that moment, but I'll tell you that I love it. And it's recorded in Genesis 32, beginning in verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, Jacob responding, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then this mysterious, enigmatic character that Jacob later comes to the conviction and realization was God himself responds and says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Here's what we know about this moment in time. We know that God encountered Jacob in a unique way. We know that the metaphor of Jacob wrestling with God becomes more than just a metaphor. And we know that something so so physical happens that it leaves Jacob, it tells you in the following verses, walking with a limp. That it it physically there's a physical altercation that we can't get around. We know something actually happened here. But the fourth thing that we know and learn here from this encounter of God and Jacob together is that God renames him and gives him a name, not just for himself, but for his future people, whom he made these special promises to. He calls them Israel. It's two Hebrew words squished together that he gives you the definition of in verse 28, where he says, I will call you Israel, for you have struggled, you've wrestled with God. To me, it's a really interesting concept to consider that right from the beginning of man's relationship with God, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God set a precedent that it, their relationship, would look like tension and wrestling through things with him. That there would be this inherent element or of struggle within the unique relationship that men would have with God through faith. And so we today, as what the New Testament refers to as true sons of Abraham through faith, we follow in that line and pattern of those who are known to wrestle with their God. Remember, God's not just renaming a person in this moment. He's giving a name and title to all who would follow this man, his special people group. And it's an awesome thing to me that right from the beginning, God would start his relationship with a man and a nation by, by stating here that they would battle for faith, that they'd wrestle with him. It's interesting, again, because God seems more than okay with our relationship and approach to him being imperfect. Being imperfect as we wrestle through things with him. Remember that Hebrews says that without faith, it's impossible to please him. But even the faith that pleases him can waver and have its glaring imperfections. We battle for faith. Listen, here's what I'm telling you. If God isn't intimidated by our questions or wrestling through things, then maybe we are free to be okay with them too, because maybe we're invited to bring them to him. And I think that's a beautiful invitation. You see, we're talking about the surprising book and burden of Habakkuk. And to me, I think it's surprising because his burden and question is something that God ordained to have land in the book itself. I told you we're going to camp out here for the majority of our time, so just bear with me for a couple of minutes. I want to throw some things at you real quick just to chew on before we move on to wrap up with the final thoughts. And so what I'd like to do is allow me to further explain this briefly, and then let me contrast this, and then before we close, I just want to personalize it. So let me explain a little bit further this concept. Not about you, but in school, I never did wrestling. It was a little too up close and personal for my liking. Like, I went... Uh, out for the football team one year and they decided cuz I was a baseball player to try me out at quarterback and so they said go under center and i didn't know what that means until they took my hands and placed them under center and that's when i knew god did not call me to be a football player it was just too close for me i'm like no i've seen shotgun let's do the shotgun thing you stand there i stand 6 feet back you toss me the ball this is how it works listen that's why i never got into wrestling cuz it's so up close and personal but think of the imagery then that god chooses That's the imagery he takes on, of you wrestling through things with him. It's the process of God developing your faith and growing the intimacy between you and him. You see, I wrestle with my kids. I have a, a young son. He's nine. I wrestle with him not because I think that he can beat me and I need to prove my dominance. No, I wrestle with him because I want him to know that I'm approachable. I get down on his level in order to engage with him because I want him to know that his dad is safe not because I want him to know that his dad can dominate him. I mean, think of it this way. God could have just simply engaged with Jacob and set a new pattern for his relationship with those who would follow through a handshake. It could have been a high five. He could have required that Jacob just give a bow, but instead God would engage with him in this personal interaction of wrestling. But so often we wonder, but does it mean that maybe I'm not really a Christian, that I'm not a real follower of Jesus? If I have questions or doubts that I'm working through, that I'm wrestling with. Well, no, not at all. It doesn't disqualify you. In fact, you've lived up to your name and title, that God has called us the ones who would wrestle with him. You see, faith isn't certainty. It's a willingness to commit in the face of uncertainty. Oh, there's reason and logic behind the things that I believe by faith. But listen, faith isn't an absolute freedom from uncertainty. It's not certainty. It's a willingness to commit in the face of uncertainty. You see, all throughout Scripture, the people of God that he called and loved and used and blessed were people who wrestled with him. Think of Abraham, whose, whose faith was partial, who believed God but struggled to believe. Think even of Jacob, who wanted to trust but was more accustomed to manipulating than he was to living by faith. Think of Moses, who would wrestle with God, as he was brought into a place of leadership over God's people. Think even of the prophet that we're discussing today, who would bring his questions of God's justice and human suffering in the world and purpose in life. He'd bring those to God to wrestle through them with him. Think about Job's story. It's not just about loss. It's about doubt and the struggle for faith in the midst of loss and trauma and suffering. Oh, you could talk about David or Jeremiah or the apostle Paul, or in the New Testament, a guy by the name of Nathanael, one of Jesus' disciples. When his friends came to him and said, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, you remember what he says? Can anything good come from Nazareth? But do you remember how Jesus responds? He shows up and calls him an Israelite in whom there is no guile. There's no hypocrisy. There's no pretense in this guy. And then Jesus invites him to follow him. You see, the root system of my Christian faith was not handed down from some ivory tower. It was passed on from men and women who through brokenness and hurt wrestled with God. Both you and I were invited to join into that legacy. You see, God invites us to bring our doubts and our questions to him, to wrestle with him, to hang on to him and say, hey, I'm not letting go until you respond. Oh, I'm not leaving until we've worked through this. My friends, wouldn't it be awesome to be a part of a community of people where there is no judgment for struggling and working through things and where there's no pressure to have it all together? That's what being with God's people is meant to feel like because God doesn't ask for more than that from his people. Now, let me not just further develop this. Let me contrast this very, very quickly. When you contrast God's invitation to you to come and wrestle with him, with other religions that depict God, you're left with a, a very stark contrast. In fact, other religions present a very insecure deity. Two quick examples. One would be Islam We're in the Quran in Surah 5, in verse 101 and 102, it says, Oh, you who believe, do not ask about things which, if you were shown, will distress you. Some people before you asked such questions and for that reason lost their faith. Okay, so think about what it says to you. God does not invite your questions. He actually does the opposite. He warns his people that your questions will leave you troubled and faithless. So deny them, push them away. Another example would be Mormonism when in the Doctrines and Covenants, chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, it says, But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it will be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings. But you shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong." In Mormonism, God allows your questions, but the answer to those doubts and questions will not be found with your logic or with rational thinking. They will be experienced emotionally because the answers will not be found in any other way. Whereas in biblical Christianity, the Old Testament and the New Testament, God invites his people to engage their minds logically, to consider him and what he says in order to find faith. It's the prophet, of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah who says, come, speaking on behalf of God, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. It's Jesus coming where he said that you should love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's Romans chapter 12, verse one, that says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Another way that's translated is that it is your logical conclusion. Listen to me, please. The narrative, the Christian narrative and worldview invites God's people to bring their doubts and questions to God rather than to suppress and hide them. So let me now personalize this. Yes, develop it, then contrast it, but let me personalize it. You see, I think so often that we view our questions and doubts as villains in our story. That we have to try to kill and bury before they destroy the beauty of our story. Remove the villain and the doubts, and maybe then the, the story will work out perfect and easy and have a happy ending. Or maybe, just maybe, our questions and doubts ought to be viewed as antibodies that are necessary and beneficial to us, that actually increase our health. I believe us, pastor and author Dominic Doan, that I first heard say this. He says, as hunger prompts the body to find food, doubt is meant to prompt the mind to find reality. Again, quoting Dominic, this time with certainty that it actually was him. He said, your doubts aren't a sign of spiritual collapse, but of a faith that is screaming out for substance and truth. You see, I believe in scripture that you and I are given permission to have doubts and questions, which means that we should not ignore them. Please don't do that. They will catch up to you and they will haunt you until they do. And I've learned that they only grow larger in the dark. This is what I did for so many years, where I hid myself from, not the questions of other people, but from my own questions that I carried as a young man, worried that if I dug beneath the surface that I'd find no roots to my Christian faith at all, nothing that could give it strength or life or vitality. But what I found was the opposite. Oh, don't ignore them, but I'd also warn you, don't adore them. Some love their doubts and questions. They, they embrace them as an identity and even use them as ex- an excuse. Rather than digging to find a suitable answer, they become a scapegoat for them to jump on the train and trend of deconstruction, where they abandon their faith altogether, saying, until I figure these things out, I'm not willing to work with God or wrestle with him at all. No, we stay and wrestle through our challenges, through our doubts and questions. I think what we're meant to do is, is not ignore them, not adore them, but to embrace and face them. You see, you should embrace and face your doubts in an honest and mature way. Oh, Don't be afraid of them. Make time to wrestle with them and answer them. And then drag safe people into that wrestling match to wrestle through those questions with you. Let me wrap this up by just asking you the question. Are you willing to commit yourself to Jesus even if you still have questions or even doubts? Even if you still wrestle with tension of trusting a faithful good God in the midst of a broken, hard world? Remember, that's what this book is really all about. The unveiling of the experience and the arrival of the promise that God gave in Genesis 3. That one day he would come to make what's wrong right again. Oh, you may have questions about whether or not the science that you believe in the Bible are in conflict. You may wonder what you should think about sexuality or sexual expression. You might still be forming an opinion on any number of issues. It might even just simply be that you're, you're tiring as you try to reconcile your pain with the good God. But are you settled on who Jesus is in the midst of that? Are you settled on what your response to him is meant to be? Remember, faith isn't certainty. It's a willingness to commit in the face of uncertainty. And for me, my faith is that God came, driven by love, to leave heaven. He came in humility to become a man. He lived in perfection. He suffered and died, not for his own sin, but taking the punishment and payment for my own sin, and then rose again and lives on and invites me into that everlasting life with him. But I don't have an answer for all the suffering I face. I don't have an answer for all the suffering in the lives of people that I love. What I do know is what's true and trustworthy about Jesus. I told you that we're talking about the surprising book and burden of Habakkuk, and I told you that we just end with a simple thought on that final thing, a third thing. It's surprising because of how God brings just judgment on the sons of Adam. You see, the book will show us that God is, in fact, faithful and just, but he's going to shock the world with how he will carry out his justice. And a greater shock than what he tells him here of the Chaldeans coming to destroy the land and drive out the inhabitants of the people of God into a distant place, more shocking than that as an act of God's just judgment would be Christ himself coming to a cross see, for the God of Israel to be a God of justice, it wasn't a surprise at all for the world. Every ancient people group had a deity that believed was just and would demand justice. And God, the God of the Bible, was no different in that respect until he proved just how different he was when he proved that his love was equally as powerful as his demand for justice. When he would demand justice at any and all cost to himself he himself became the object of his divine wrath and judgment so that we could become the object and recipient of his amazing unmerited love. What was a shock was that Jesus would be treated as an enemy so that you and I could be received as sons. The shock is that the divine God of justice would suffer for us so that we could become the children of a loving Heavenly Father. And that perfect, wonderful, gracious love Oh, it was demonstrated and clearly seen once and for all on a cross where Christ would die. Again, closing with this quote from author Heath Thomas in his book, Faith Amid the Ruins. He said, we don't know whether Habakkuk actually interacted with Daniel or had special revelation concerning the future of the temple, as some ancient teachings and traditions believe. But we do see a prophet in a difficult place who cries out to God and in the process of relating to him, learns a level of deeper devotion. It is possible to think of Habakkuk's experience as a journey of transformation from faith to a deeper level of faithfulness. And we are invited to join into this journey. Father, my mind goes to that that story of a man who approached her son Jesus and pleaded with him to heal his son. And Jesus, you responded and said to him who believes that you would do this thing. And the man responded and said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And then Jesus, you responded and healed him. Jesus, that imperfect faith was still what you were looking for. Our imperfect faith is something you'll take from us as we still come saying, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but I'm still wrestling. Like Habakkuk, Lord, I believe that's why I'm here, bringing it to you. But, but this is unbelievable life in a broken world. And so, God, for hearts that come in here, living in that tension, I pray today that they'd find some rest in you, and that Jesus this week that they'd sit with you, that Holy Spirit you'd minister to their hearts as they bring in vulnerability and raw honesty. The disappointment and doubts and frustration and confusion. They bring those things to a good God while living in the midst of a broken world. And God, I'm praying that you would use this series in the coming weeks to allow us as a church together to, with vulnerability, lay our hearts bare before you and have you begin to do a healing work in them. In Jesus' name, amen.